listening to Common Sense with Oxen Managing Director Jeremy Wilson and host Gab Davenport. Listen and learn your way through financial discussions as Jeremy dives into business success and how to achieve this through planning, forecasting, execution, managing cash flow, budgeting, and everything in between. We hear you already. Not another boring financial podcast. No, no. Common Sense is not like any of those because, well, Jeremy is not like any other accountant. Trust us. Take a listen and you'll see what we mean. Common Sense. They're not as common as you think. Good morning, Jeremy. Morning, Gabe. I feel like it's been a while in between lockdowns and whatnot. We've been busy. Who doesn't love a nice (laughs) lockdown, eh? So today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what we covered in our last episode, which was cash flow management. Um, And we touched on, well, you touched on, the seven key causes of poor cash flow. Yes. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into each of those seven key causes, just to understand them a bit more, to perhaps give a little bit of an example as to what this might look like in a business, and then just a few questions that I have that hopefully other people will find interesting as well. So the first key cause is accounts receivable process, so the process that sits there. So we've identified that this is a poor accounts uh, receivable process will result in debtor days, which is the time between billing and banking, that time being too high. So this is going to stifle our cash flow. And there are many strategies and strategic things that we can do to minimise those debtor days, including tightening up our terms of trade, offering prompt payment discounts and streamlining billing processes. Correct. Yeah, great. So in regards to those debtor days, How do we know what too high is and are there indicators that we should be looking out for that we go ding, 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 that we're now reaching that too high mark? Yeah, there are, Gab. Accountants call it the age of receivables or debtor days. And what we try and do is calculate how many days worth of sales you have sitting in debtors. Now, you remember when we talked last time, we were talking about basically sending an invoice out at the end of the month and then they pay us on the 20th of the following month. So that should take about 20 days. But then if we send out an invoice at the beginning of the month and they pay us on the 20th of the following month, and that's probably going to take about 50 days. So if we do the maths between 50 and 20 and average, we're going to end up with somewhere around 35. Yeah. Generally speaking, depending on your industry, but if we just go across the board, 40 days is good, Mm -hmm. 60 days or more is bad. Somewhere in between, there's a little bit of work that needs to take place. Right. Okay. So that's when you want to look at your processes and and streamline that. Correct. And that calculation for um, debtor days doesn't need to be particularly difficult. If you just basically think to yourself, how much do I sell in a year? It might be 1.2 million. How much have I got sitting in my receivables? It might be 100,000. Therefore, you can pretty quickly see that your debtor days, 100,000 over 1.2 million, is probably one twelfth of a year, which is surprisingly enough about 30 days. Mm. Yeah, so there you right. go. Well, that is kind of an easy way to look at it yeah, then. <laughs> simple. It's about sales. Yeah. And just to continue just for a little bit, I've been having a lot of meetings lately with people coming out of lockdown and they're excited about their prospects and there's mm. this great excitement. And I've said to them, I said, this is wonderful, but we actually need to bank this stuff. And it's great having new clients coming on board, but when do we actually see the cash flow? Mm. So I've asked this particular client to go back and measure the gap between excitement 
and what I call reality. <laughs> now, it's not the same as debtor days. This is basically how long it takes for the salesperson to go, yay, and for the accountant to wait and eventually go, yay, I've got the cash. Now, in this particular client's case, it could be 30 to 60 days simply to sign them up. So we're really excited, but hang on a minute, it's taking a long time to get the cash. Mm. So it's the whole concept around making sure that we focus on banking the sales rather than just making the sale. Exactly. Excitement, reality. Yeah. Excitement, reality. Yeah. Right, is that making sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. And then, of course, uh, uh, depending on what that excitement period is, that's also you're taking resource out of the business, which isn't being banked for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But we're all happy because we've just signed up this new customer. Yeah. They're not paying us anything. Yeah. And actually our overdraft is getting worse, but we're very happy. Yeah. yeah that doesn't make sense. <laughs> we've also mentioned a payment discount, offering a payment discount. Which typically in my, well, what I've been told previously is that you should never discount your service or your product unless, of course, you're, you know, you're going into a promotion period or, or anything like that. How do we change our mindset around offering payment discounts? Well, I can be a little bit cheeky here because I'm definitely not a fan of discounts. I regard that as a four-letter word in terms of cash flow. A lot of people will probably receive a power bill and they'll probably be offered a small discount if they pay that on time. What do you think the real power bill amount actually is? Is it this amount before the prompt discount, or is it really just the amount after the discount? So I'll let you come to your own conclusions on that. If your overdraft is costing you a very small amount of interest, which it currently probably is thanks to COVID, offering someone a discount to pay quicker is probably not that clever because it's not actually costing you much while you're waiting for them to pay. If interest rates turn around and they will eventually go up, and in my lifetime I've seen them in the mid-20s, then all of a sudden it makes sense, because it's costing me 20% on my overdraft. If I could lose 1% or 2% but get some money in, it'll save me 20%. So there's some logic around it, but in all honesty, I'm not a great fan. Where do we start with streamlining the billing process? Like, assuming our clients have all started on different days of the month and they're all on different service packaging or, you know, all wanting different products from the business, where do we start with streamlining that whole process? Well, I'm a great believer in, in using the, the software that we've currently got, and a lot of our customers are using Xero. And Xero is making it particularly easy for people to send out their bills straight away. It's making it really easy to set different due dates, and it automates the follow-ups. It's, it's good, but what I'm now hearing from a lot of people is, oh, that's just zero sending me a reminder. I'm going to ignore that. So we've got to be a little bit careful and not go, yay, zero is 100% my saviour. Mm. There are other possibilities. There was a program I used a while ago called Debtor Daddy, okay. right, which is also a good one to use in terms of following up. But at the end of the day, the only thing that I've seen work virtually 100% of the time is someone picking up the phone. Yeah, that personal. It's personal. Yeah. Um, that email will be ignored, be deleted, possibly even replied to, but still forgotten about. Mm. That phone call, which is obviously followed up with an email saying, this is what we just said, so you've got it in writing, seems to generate a huge amount of cash flow very quickly. So if you're not getting on the phone, it's time to start. And in zero, it's interesting. You can always see once you've sent out your invoice, you can see if they've viewed it or not. No, isn't that cool? Because, <laughs> so oh, you I can pick up the phone and say, "Oh, I can see that you've opened the invoice." Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, what invoice? I never received that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. 
Um, anything else on accounts receivable process? I think just start measuring your debtor days for a start. Mm. And if you start thinking to yourself, why have I got 60 days worth of income sitting in debtors? I think you'll find that that will force you into action. If your bank account balance is okay, sometimes you tend to just muddle along without realising that you've provided finance to all your customers and you've just become a bank charging 0% interest. So focus on the numbers, put in place better systems and procedures, have people run those systems and procedures and make sure that you're constantly monitoring your debtor days. Yeah, great advice. Okay, our second key cause is the accounts payable process. So a review of all suppliers' terms may identify ways to improve cash flow and potentially achieve better terms of trade. Implementing budgets, streamlining your payment processes to maximise prompt payment discounts and avoid late payment penalties is just the start. Questions. So uh, how do you impose late payment penalties? I mean, assume this needs to be outlined in your contract or your terms of trade. How do you start with that? Yeah, and you're 100% right. It does need to be in your terms of trade. And how many people read the terms of trade that they sign? Mm -hmm. We'll just leave that one open. Generally speaking, most terms of trade will have the ability to add on a late payment penalty um, or legal collection costs. Right. And that second point is absolutely critical because if you do start getting into a situation of having to use a credit agency to chase up your receivables, you need to know that your terms of trade specify that the customer is going to pay. So in this instance, we've got our terms where people are paying us specifying there will be a late payment, there will be action taken and you'll be paying for it. Your job is being on the other side because you're now paying these people is to actually say to yourself, right, well, what are the terms of trade? So have you checked your terms of trade? Mm. Do you know, for instance, whether you're complying or not? Did you sign a piece of paper which says you need to pay me on the seventh working day, but you're paying on the 20th? What are the consequences? So start with the obvious. Start with what you know. The most dangerous thing you're likely to do after you've signed terms of trade is to sign a personal guarantee. Avoid these at all cost if you can. Because the whole concept of being in business is not to unprotect your assets, it's to protect your assets. So signing a personal guarantee is not always the best thing to do. So read your terms of trade, make sure that if you are at the moment being a bit late with people, that you are complying still with the terms of trade, that you're not getting hit with payments or discounts, and you're communicating with people. If you were to owe someone money and you were talking to them every couple of days, they won't have a problem. If you owe someone money and you go completely quiet, bury your head in the sand and hope things will go away, you'll have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So it's about making sure you know what you've committed yourself to, avoiding a personal guarantee if at all possible, and making sure that you're making your payments and keeping your communication going with your creditors, which is the people you owe, even if you can't pay them in full. Um, A lot of people will say to me, oh, I've got this big bill and I can't pay it. And I'll go, yeah, that's cool. Could you pay a little bit of it every week? Oh, yeah, I could do that. Mm. So the big, big elephant in the room could actually be eaten away in little bite-sized chunks. Little chunks, once again, it's communication. I mean, think of this as being the Inland Revenue Department, for argument's sake. What's a good thing with the Inland Revenue Department? Keep really quiet, don't pay them anything and hope they'll go away. That's probably not going to work. What about communicate and drip feed them when your cash flow is a bit tight? All right? Same principle. Yeah, and I think that also comes down to reputation as well. I mean, New Zealand's, we're not a big country, so you don't want to lose your reputation in a market just because you haven't been able to communicate with, you know, someone that you owe money to. Oh, totally. For a service or a product, you know? Exactly. It will get around. Yeah. So in terms of budgets... 
This is referring to department budgets or, you know, business budgets and forecasting what payments will be falling and when. Is that correct? Yes. Right. So by having that structure in place or those systems in place, that's going to help the accounts payable process by knowing when those funds are going to hit the budget line. Yeah, your financial controller is going to be very happy because we've got an idea of when the cash is going out. Mm. It also gives the people who are spending an idea of what they can or can't spend. So quite often people will say, oh, you know, what's my entertainment budget this month? And it's it's $500 and I've spent $400, right, I've got $100 left. I look on budgets as being almost like that little birdie on your shoulder, just letting you know every now and again, are you under, are you over, should you be spending this, and if you're going to go over budget, where are you going to make it up? Mm. You've always got this sort of like second personality, just double checking. It's the same as receivables. We measured receivable days with payables. We need to measure how we're going compared to budget. So every month we should be looking at what's called a profit and loss Mm. and we should be saying, right, what did we spend on this particular expense? What was our budget? Are we up? Are we down? What can we learn from this for next month? Yeah, amazing. And then I guess that comes down to accountability as well, putting the onus on your staff internally to manage those budgets. Yes. And having a strong team around you to be able to enforce those. Correct, yes. Yeah, great. Anything else about the accounts payable process? No, I think we've pretty much covered it. Know what you've got. Make sure that you're complying. Talk a lot to people you owe money to and have budgets. Yeah. And budgets are a great thing in your personal life too. Totally. Yeah. All right. Number three, inventory process. Uh, So carrying stock for too long means full shelves, but an empty bank account. This is no different if you're a service provider with work in progress that is yet to be billed. Reviewing your stock ordering systems and stock control processes, to name a few, will identify strategies to ensure cash hits the bank sooner. So this is a fine balance, right? Particularly if you're working with physical stock. Mm. Um, How are we best to put a process in here? And is it a forecasting matter? Is it looking at previous sales or stock on hand levels? Do we need to factor in the current market? And then how do we align our processes to this, you know, new or different market? Where do we start? Uh, It's quite a tricky one. And getting that balance right is really important. There was a Japanese car manufacturer and I'll just make up some of the facts, but it'll give you the general idea. They had a you know a warehouse full of car batteries. So those batteries were gathering dust. And I often look at inventory as what's got dust on it. Mm. All right. It's not because I'm a clean freak. It's because if it's got dust, it's been there for too long. And this Japanese car company is looking at this warehouse of all these dusty batteries and it's using a few each day. And it's thinking, gosh, that's a lot of cash that's just tied up just sitting there. Why don't we talk to the battery manufacturer and ask them if they could, I don't know, say deliver a week's supply on a Monday every every week. So they did that and they were then getting their stock that they needed of batteries just in time. That's where the concept of just in time stock comes from. Right. They minimised the amount that they had to carry in that great big warehouse. Now what happened to their bank balance was that their bank balance goes up because all the money they had sitting in that warehouse is now sitting in their bank account. They can now go and buy better batteries. They can hire more people. They could make more cars. All of a sudden, that cash can start moving into the working capital cycle and start to actually generate profit while it's sitting there gathering dust. It's not a hope. So you've got to start with what can we get away with? So the car company figured, oh, we're going to need X batteries a week. Great. Now, there was obviously a bit of slack in there. They made sure they didn't run out. We as manufacturers should do exactly the same. What 
is my minimum? What can I get away with? What's as low as I can go? Now let's add a little bit more onto that because we don't want to cut things too fine. And let's test and measure. You know, is 18 units of that going to be enough? Oh, actually we've been using 14 for the last three months. Maybe we could drop that down a bit. So a bit of test, bit of measure, see how we're going. Can we reduce that number that's sitting in stock or sitting in work in progress down and get it into our bank account? Now, you talked about a service company and honestly, they're the worst, (laughs) right? Service companies go and do all this work. They have that excitement thing going on. Yeah. It's so good, so good, so good. The reality is, oh, we're not getting paid. Yeah. We're not getting any cash in. And this thing called work in progress is building and building and building. I've got this great big asset, but I've got no cash. Yeah. Same thing. All right. What can we do about it from a service industry? One of the big things is we can start doing little interim bills. Yeah, right. Right. So all of a sudden that work in progress comes down. From a manufacturer's point of view, we can do something very similar. We can start doing little purchases of stock rather than big purchases of stock. So we talked about the elephant and bite-sized chunks. It's the same thing. Right? And then dust check your stock. Right? Yeah. If it's got dust on it, why have you got it? Oh, because someone in 18 years' time might come in and buy it. (laughs) Not good enough. All right. So dust check it, figure out what you can get away with, test and measure it, and try and bring both stock and work and progress down to the lowest you can get away with. Yeah. And I guess like for a product, someone who's got product on hand, stock on hand, when you are carrying too much of that dusty product, you're going to be forced to work in that discount space, aren't you, to get rid of that product? Yeah. 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 And what did we say about discounts? Don't do it. Avoid it. four-letter word. Yeah. Sorry. Can't (laughs) add, but anyway. Anything else on on that matter, stock on hand and... Keep an eye out for shrinkage. All okay. right. It's that one thing that we, we know it will never happen to us because all of our team members are wonderful. We trust them implicitly. They would never do that. Yeah. Just every now and again, just keep an eye on shrinkage. Yeah, okay. uh, it does happen, and unfortunately, it can bite you. And I've seen shrinkage occur from people that control the accounting records, and the customers didn't know about it for years. Oh. So it's a really good idea just to make sure yeah. that if you did buy 10 of those things and you've only produced nine things with it, where's the other one gone? Mm. All right? Yeah. Okay, next point is inappropriate debt or capital structure. So often significant cash flow and interest charge improvements can be achieved with a regular review of existing debt. Maybe your debt or capital structure could be improved or perhaps your debt should be consolidated and paid off over a longer term. Maybe you need to review and adjust what you're drawing from the business or perhaps the business needs a capital injection to fund its growth. Uh, This makes perfect sense, right? Often we hear about consolidation or bank transfers to opposing lenders. But again, what is this tipping point here and how do we know when it's time to consolidate or, you know, when to refinance or when to look at extending those terms? Yeah, good, good, good questions. This is one of the first things they teach us in accountancy is to actually match the life of your asset with the life of your borrowing. And if you think about that simple statement, how many people can go out tomorrow and buy a house for cash? No one. It's unlikely. You're no, probably definitely not in Auckland. Not, not <laughs> no. You're probably going to get a mortgage. Yeah. And the mortgage is probably going to be for 25 or 30 years. Mm. All right, so you're technically marrying the the borrowing lifetime with the asset lifetime. If we start going into business, let's start thinking about, I want to buy a $30,000 printer. 
Mm-hmm. Now, this is a real example. I had a customer that they were in graphic design. They wanted a $30,000 printer, so they just went and bought it, and they used their overdraft to pay for it. And you'd sort of think, well, so what's wrong with that? Well, unfortunately, that $30,000 is now sitting in that printer. It can't be used to spend on anything else, and the printer's going to go down in value. Mm. So it's not sounding too good. And it was made even worse when I come along and knock on their door and tell them that in three months' time, they're going to need to find another X thousand dollars for tax. And they're going, hang on, we haven't got that. And I'm going, where's your cash gone? They pointed to the printer. And I'm going, that's not going to work. I can't send that bottom paper tray to the IRD and say, here's your taxes. It's not (laughs) going to happen. So they had used a daily or a weekly cash source, an overdraft, to purchase an asset which is likely going to last for three to five years. Yeah. Now, this is rhetorical, but is the answer not obvious? If you're going to buy that $30,000 printer, don't you put it on finance for three to five years? Keep $29,000 in your bank account. Use that to pay wages that generates more profit that pays for the printer. Mm. Right? There's a, a dude called Robert Kiyosaki, and he wrote a wonderful book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he was wandering around town and he wanted desperately to buy a Porsche. But instead of going out and buying a Porsche, he built up his property portfolio so that it would generate positive cash flow profits Mm. that would generate enough to pay for the Porsche. He ends up with property. He ends up with the Porsche. He didn't buy the Porsche. He just rented it in effect. Yeah. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. And I mean, for the printer scenario, I guess from their perspective, they saw that as a means of income. Yes. If they bought the printer, they were then going to be able to service the clients or offer a product instantly. Yeah, exactly. But just hadn't thought about the ways in which they could have bought. Yeah, how do I finance that? Mm. And then what do I do if I've got a a credit card that's charging me 13%? I've got a house mortgage at 4%. I've got car finance at 11%. The temptation, and banks would love us to do this, is to always put everything on the house mortgage. Yeah. Right? But if we think about what I said before, match the life of your asset with the life of your borrowings, and I decide to go and buy a car and secure it against the house, I'm now paying that car off over 25 or 30 years. Yeah. Can anyone imagine what the interest is on oh, that car? I hate to think. So just be very careful when people say, let's consolidate all your debt. Let's make life really simple for you. They're still trying to make money. And if they're making money, we might not be. Yeah. So be careful and talk to your accountant and have a good plan around your debt. Are we reducing it? Are we increasing it? If we're increasing it, what are we doing with it? If we're reducing it, are we reducing personal or are we reducing business debt? And that's a very big question. Personal debt, we want gone. Business debt, eh, we're not in a huge hurry. Yeah, we can live with a bit. Yeah, it's tax deductible. We quite like it. (laughs) So obviously there's potential risks, but are there, you know, big risks that we should instantly be thinking of, you know, big red flags that um, when we're thinking about consolidating or we're thinking about extending our lending terms or um, that time period, what, you know, what are we up against from a risk perspective? I think sometimes businesses can borrow because it's an easy way out. Yeah, right. I can solve my cash flow problem. Uh, We're not making much money at the moment, but I can go and add another 100 grand onto the home. Problem solved. An old mentor of mine used to say something really simple. He said, I will not borrow to fund losses. Mm. Now, if you think about that sentence, that's pretty much what we need to be careful of. Mm. Are we funding losses? We had a client who was in childcare a few years ago, 
and childcare basically gets three very big payments during the year and has a whole lot of costs in the rest of the year. So they tend to have a great big overdraft, then they get a great big lump sum, then a great big overdraft, great big lump sum. So we were looking at this business and every year it seemed to need just a little bit more. I'm going, that's interesting, what's going on here? So we looked at it, instead of looking at it monthly, we looked at it every four months when the bulk funding arrived. And we noticed that the bulk funding wasn't quite enough each four months that arrives mm. to cover the costs. And we go, what's the problem? Where's our cash going? And then we looked at the profit and loss. And we go, hang on, it's profitable. So we're not funding losses, so this is good. Why is our cash position getting worse? It was the bank. Yeah, overdraft fees. It was the bank wanting their loans repaid back so quickly, like three to five years, that it was almost killing the business. So we went back to the bank and we said, dudes, let's (laughs) just get serious here. Let's make the term of that loan 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Oh, we can do that. Because it is secured, isn't it? Oh, yes, sir. We can certainly do that. All of a sudden, cash flow problem solved. wasn't profitability. It was the structure of their borrowings. Yeah, right. right. So in a strange way, don't talk to your bank about your borrowings. Talk to your accountant first. Yeah, talk to you. Yeah. Use a professional. Totally. So once we've done, you know, whatever we're doing in terms of our structural change there, should we then be looking at a new capital strategy? Should we be looking inwards as to why and how much we're drawing from the business? Or if, in fact, we do need a cash injection, how do we go about that, you know, to allow more growth for the business? Yeah, I'm a great one in trying never to reduce the owner drawings. Yeah. And simply, we tend to always be the lowest paid people in our business. Mm. And going back to that lovely man, Robert Kiyosaki, um, he would always say, pay yourself first. Pay yourself first, you can sort the rest out, but pay yourself first. So I'm not a great one for reducing drawings unless I really, really have to. Sure. Because I believe that the business needs to work for the shareholders. Yeah. But then what happens if we need a capital injection? Where's it coming from? These are very big questions and there are probably a a multitude of answers. I suppose I would always start with what do we need the funds for? Is there going to be a payback period where those funds are going to be generating profits to actually pay for themselves? How long would that be? What's it going to cost me? And what's the benefit I'm getting out of it? So with everything to do with business, those two words, cost and benefit, need to be weighed up. The cost of my $100,000 borrowing is X. The benefit it's going to provide me is Y. Now, if Y is bigger than X, I'm getting quite happy. If Y is a lot bigger than X, I'm getting very happy. So always cost, benefit, cost, benefit. There's no simple answer to how you raise capital or who you raise it from. Excellent. Anything else on that point? Don't always look on borrowings as being bad. All right. Yeah. So if your business is borrowing and it's using the money it's borrowing to pay you and you're reducing your private debt with that, that's almost the perfect answer. Yeah, right. I, I like business borrowings. I don't like private borrowings. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a way that we could do a little bit more in the business to reduce a little bit more in the private. Yeah. And the short answer is yes, there is. Yeah. But more on that later. All right, next point is that our overheads are too high. So every business should do a thorough review of its overheads each year, reviewing the effectiveness of your marketing spend, going paperless, putting expense budgets in place and changing your technology uh, platforms are some simple ways to reduce our overheads. I feel like this isn't just a business strategy. It's really a life strategy, isn't it? Like, you know, when you're going shopping, buying milk, you're looking at how you can save costs in buying a bottle of milk each week. Correct. You know, so that's an overhead in, in your life. Yeah. Um, so same applies for business, really. 
you know, is any reduction a good reduction? Or when we do draw the line on practicalities or quality of overheads, like is there a point where we go, actually, I'm going to draw the line here because that overhead that I'm paying is quality and I do need that. I hear you. Overheads uh, in accounting speak tend to be fixed. Yeah. Now, they're not, as soon as I say that, I'm wrong, but they tend to be sort of the same every year. What I don't want you to do is spend every single month looking at your overheads. Right. All right. It's important maybe once a year when you're sitting down with me to go through your cash flow forecast, we set the expense budgets, we start looking at each expense and we use those two words, cost and benefit again. Yeah, okay. All right. So what's the cost? What's the benefit? You know, if we think of overheads from an alphabetical point of view, advertising, Yeah. right? What's the cost? What's the benefit? Are we getting bang for our buck? That's what we need to look at. You talked about the milk, and I go, sweet, you, you can compare that because it's it's similar. Every milk is sort of the same. Mm. So right, that one's the best one. That's the best value for money. Same thing with your phone bill. They're sort of the same. Which one's giving us the best bang for our buck? Yeah. Well, actually, we'd like to go for the cheapest, but we can't because we don't get coverage where we're working. So we actually, okay, fine. There's a cost there, but the benefit is you've got better coverage. So line by line with me every year, we should go through every single cost then we'll say, right, we've set our expense budgets. That's now part of accounts payable to sort that out. We're not going to focus on this. What we are going to focus on once we've set those budgets is our income, our costs to generate that income, and our gross profit or margin. Mm. That's where we make money. Excellent. And have you got any good tips or questions that, that you know we should ask ourselves when reviewing our overheads? Like, obviously, it's the comparison of cost and benefit. But is there anything that we can sort of sit back whilst we're doing our review of our overheads without speaking to you that we should be asking ourselves? I think the easiest question is, what's changed? So last year, I spent $10,000 a month on this. What's changed? Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, we've got three new of those and two new of that. Some of 10,000 is now going to be. So always thinking about what's changed. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great advice. All right, moving on to gross profit margins um, being too low. That's our next, um, our next point. So our gross profit margin is what is left from sales value after variable costs are deducted. There are a large number of strategies that you can implement to increase your margin, such as focusing on rework and wastage, reducing stock shrinkage, and improving team productivity, just to name a few. Where do we start? What's the easiest way to increase margin? Yeah, and this is the key to virtually every business I work with is all about margin. Um, as we just said, a lot of customers will focus on overheads and that's fine, yep. sweet as, but we do that once a year. Margin, we're constantly looking at. And it is a strange thing because we sort of have to look at it both positive and negative. Yeah. From a positive point of view, how could we maybe get our labour force to make that widget a little bit quicker? All right, so that would potentially say, great, we could make a little bit more sale from that cost. How can we increase the price that we're charging? That would also change our margin. So we've got to look at the costs. Can they come down a little bit? Look at the income. Can it go up a little bit? Now, if you made a little change in your selling price, say 1% or 2%, and you made a little bit of a saving in your cost of sales of, let's say, 1% or 2%, the increase in your gross margin could be well in excess of 10 to 15%. Wow. I know. Yeah. Tiny little changes. Yeah. And I'm glad you picked up on the whole concept of rework because that rework is a bit of a nasty one. Now, I have a lot of customers that manufacture, they then go and install, 
doesn't always work, so there's some rework. Mm. Now, you think about the rework. What does the customer measure to know what the problem is? Well, they're paying someone's salary, so they're not 100% sure what that cost is. They're hopping in a van and they're driving from A to B, but that's all hidden in motor vehicle expenses. There might be a few little bits and pieces in terms of materials that they can measure, but they don't know the real value of that rework. Yeah. So you need to start thinking about how can I actually quantify what it's actually going to cost for me to send Bob over to XYZ Limited and put one handle on one thingy. And you think it's the handle? It's not. So rework, we need to have a system for measuring it. In a building sense, we quite often back cost. And that term basically means when I quoted someone, I quoted them A, B and C for their costs. Now that I've actually got the bills in and I've completed the jobs, A, B and C actually became X, Y and Z. Was that more? Was that less? Right, it was more. Right, so the next time we're sending out a quote for A, B and C, we're going to up them a little bit. Yeah. Gotcha. I did a presentation many, many years ago and I had an old client sitting down the back of the room and we were talking about gross profit, mm. margin, you know, it's all gross margin, the same thing. And I said to everyone in the room, I said, step one, go and figure out your gross profit, right? And as you've correctly said, it's your sales, less your cost of sales, which is your materials and your wages to produce whatever it is we've produced. The difference is your gross profit and as a percentage of sales, that's what we call your gross profit percentage. So I said, okay, go calculate that. So let's just say they calculated it and it was 34%, whatever. I said, next time you're sending out a quote, could you quote it so that you're generating 35%? Not a biggie, mm. just a tiny little change. So this customer said, yep, we can do that. I said, just do it for your next three quotes. Well, he did it for the next six months. Uh, his sales increased, his costs didn't change. He added $100,000 to his wow. bottom line. Measurement. Yeah. Management. It's as simple as. Yeah. Right. But if you ain't measuring it, how are you managing it? Wow, that's amazing. And so, do you think there's an element of it that does start internally with the team and ensuring that you've got the best people for the job? Their efficiencies and their capabilities are high, so therefore they're going to get the job, and you know the resource is going to be managed well. Yeah, I think there's two elements. Uh, I think there's the systems that the people operate, and there's the people themselves. Yeah. You know, if you look at a business like Macca's, they have put in place bulletproof type systems so that they can have someone at the lowest common denominator type level running those systems. Yeah. Take that into a business sense. We need to make sure that our systems are bulletproof. We do have people running those systems, but we have people that are running those systems with a view to how could I do this better? Okay, so that's moving away from a McDonald's scenario to how can I make this better? So yes, the people are key, but having the ability and availability to talk about how we can improve things is often not there. Yeah. Oh, it's the owner's business. I don't want to tell them that this isn't working. They know better than me. Yeah. So, you know, maybe something as simple as a suggestion box in that situation could end up saving thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Right? But your team knows a lot about what does and doesn't work. Listening to them would make a lot of sense and making sure that the systems are as bulletproof as possible. And if there was just one strategy, not that you'll probably have just one strategy you'd like to work with, but what would this be in terms of keeping that gross profit margin at an acceptable level? That costing or rework. So you did have one answer. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's such a biggie. Such okay. a biggie. You imagine you're a construction company and you're building a house in Auckland and you're going to sell it for a million bucks and you thought you're going to make 
250000 out of it, you make 100000 Yeah, yeah. Don't you need to learn from that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so back yeah. costing is critical. Okay, cool. Anything else to add on that before we move into our last one? No, I think the last one's going to be a good one. All That'll right. add a bit too. So sales levels are too low. That's our final point. If the current sales levels don't support overheads and other cash demands on the business, then the business is not currently viable. If in high growth mode, a financing plan will be necessary. If not, we need to consider how we will grow sales. To grow sales, we need to focus on the customer, retention, generating leads, improving sales conversions, customer transaction frequency, and pricing strategies. This is a biggie. So... Is this something that should be identified when starting a business or at best a strategy put in place in those early days for when sales do potentially drop to a point where they're too low to support the overheads? Yeah, I like the five points that you read out because they're the points we actually need to focus on. Yeah. Uh, If you imagine that um, your business is like a bathtub filling up with water, the water, the taps are your new customers. Yeah. All right. But we haven't got the plug in. (laughs) How's the business going, dudes? <laughs> okay, so retention's not working too well at all here. Yeah. And remember that excitement that we get from making that sale to that person and, and how buzzed we are. And We haven't got the cash, of course, but we're so excited. Yeah. So we've got the plug out of the bath, but we're really happy because the taps are just piling out the water. Mm, it's not going to work. Yeah. I think one of the things we do not focus on uh, is keeping what we've got. You know, oh, sales, I've got to go and I've got to market, I've got to get better, I've got to spend more money. Well, actually, I think your starting point is retaining what you've got. Yeah. So number one on my hit list is always um, under-promise and over-deliver to your existing customers. Yeah. They will become a sales force for you. They will generate more sales than anything else. Absolutely. So I'm a a great believer in just trying to focus hard on keeping what we've got. Yeah. Then I'd talk to an expert like yourself in terms of, right, I've got the plug in the bottom of the bathtub. I've got the taps turned on. Gab, how can I get more coming out? Mm. Right? Yeah. How can I then make sure that what's coming out, I'm actually converting. You know, I have a lot of clients that say, oh, we convert 80, 90%. We measure it. It's 15 to 20. It's like, really? Oh, okay. Mm. Once again, we come back to that measurement management. We measure our conversion rate and all of a sudden we find, huh, we're not doing what we thought we would. Right, what are we going to change? Systems, processes, people. Uh, Then we move on to frequency. Frequency, I think the easiest way to think of that is to convert someone from monthly to four-weekly. Now, if if we're paying a bank mortgage, do we want to pay it in 12 equal monthly installments or would we be quite keen on paying it every four weeks? We've just made one extra payment on our mortgage and we're likely reduced its lifetime by years. Yeah, wow. So tiny little changes. Yeah. Uh, but the biggie, transaction value. How do I increase that? Yeah. Remember what we talked about before with gross profit, a tiny little increase. Yeah. Right? Now, we're all in a situation in this marketplace where we've got costs changing on us on a daily basis. Some are going up, some are going down. It's a very uncertain world. We can't reduce our margin, we need to focus on making sure we're delivering enough value that our customers will be happy to pay the price for that value. Yeah, yeah. All right? And that's a hard thing because that means we have to value our own services. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, we tend to undervalue those the most. So I'd like us to focus on putting a plug in the bath to keep what we've got, 
talking to an expert like yourself so I can get the taps turned on as fast as possible and making sure that as much of those leads land as is possible. Measurement, management, measurement, management. I like that analogy of the bath. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My last question here, and you can obviously talk more if you like, but if a business hits this point where their sales levels are too low, what needs to be done ASAP to obviously you know, make sure that the business can can keep operating. Would it be at this point you would recommend utilising someone externally, a professional like yourself, to actually get a bird's eye view of the business and where changes need to be changed? Because often when you're working in the business, you're so ingrained in the day-to-day function of the business that it's hard to actually sit back and go, this is, this is where we're falling short. Yeah. Yeah. No, get it. It is. It's uh, what Michael Gerber said in the E-Myth, in versus on. Mm. We're in, we're busy, we're active, but actually nothing's changing. Mm. It's really difficult sometimes to get that helicopter view. And we've talked in the past about the, the basics of what you need in business. You need a plan, you need a budget, and you might remember the third part of our trifecta or the third element we need is accountability. Yeah. And that accountability partner, for me, when I was starting out in business, it used to be my life partner. And I'd come home from work and we'd talk about problems and my partner was wonderful. They would always pretty much agree with everything I was going to do. Um, <laughs> and I thought, this is great. How hard can it be? And then one of these strange moments, I decided to employ a business coach because I thought, well, I'm a business coach, but I might need coaching. And the first thing that business coach said to me was no. And I went, oh, that's not fair. All of a sudden, I had someone who didn't have a vested interest in the business, but was willing to stand up and say yes or no. Mm. That helicopter view that they had, once again, added hundreds of thousands of dollars to my bottom line. Wow. So you must have that independent party. Yeah. And while it might currently be your your life partner, it mustn't be longer term. You yeah. need someone who's going to stand up and say no. In that case where your business is struggling for sales, the most important thing to calculate is your break even. What do you need at a bare minimum just to cover your costs? Mm. Now, am I ahead of that? Am I behind that? What's the gap and how am I going to close it? If your break even's 100 and you're doing 80, then next month you're actually going to have to do 120 yeah, to, to make, make up, up for the, yeah. all right? And then if you do another 80, you're going to have to do 140. Oh, hang on. Yeah. You know, if anyone's ever tried to travel from A to B and maintain an average speed, it's it's a lot harder than you think. Yeah. So all I would say in terms of break even is know it, live by it, and see how it changes and work with someone independent so that you can be held accountable for your plan and your budget. Yeah. Yeah, great advice. Is there anything else on that, on the sales levels being too low? Well, I think the only other thing is once you've got the financial side, you need to work with someone like yourself to actually keep those taps running. Yeah. You know, and every single business book you read will invariably come to the conclusion of surround yourself with good people. So if you're an expert in marketing and you're an expert in finance, sweet as, not an issue. Yeah. If you're not, come and talk to us. Yeah, excellent. Love that. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Gab. Thanks for tuning in to Common Sense and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you're looking for accounting or coaching services for your business, be sure to reach out via www.oxen.nz. Thanks for tuning in and subscribe.